0: Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com.
1: I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com.
0: And our very special guest is Chloe Wesley. Before becoming campaign manager at the Taxpayers Alliance, Chloe worked on several political campaigns, including the successful Vote Leave campaign. Chloe has also appeared on BBC TV programmes such as Question Time, The Daily Politics, The Andrew Marr Show, Woman's Hour and Any Questions. She's also a regular paper reviewer for Sky News and Talk Radio and has a fortnightly column published in Conservative Home. Welcome to the show, Chloe.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me on.
0: Well, it's our pleasure. So how are you today? How's everything going?
2: Pretty good. I wish there was a bit more sun, though. This is... I, as you can hear from my accent, I'm originally from Australia, and um summers aren't exactly gray and rainy where I'm from, so I'm a little bit disappointed, but I think the weather's going to get better this week
0: yeah exactly. I was going to say you have you've, you've come from Australia was that your decision or was that a family decision? How did that come
1: about Are you was. deported did they did they get rid of you <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, I always joke that it's because I wasn't very good at sport, and I was a bit of a bookworm, so they didn't want to have me. No, um, I always wanted to move to the UK. It was kind of my dream when I was a teenager, um, and I, I had a bit of a, not a, I don't want to say strange upbringing, but an unconventional one, um, as many people of my generation do, and so it was a very distant dream when I told my teachers in Queensland that I was going to go to the United Kingdom and study um, over there, but I, I got there, um, I saved up enough money to move over for university, so I first moved when I was about 18 years old, just turned 18, with a suitcase and a couple hundred dollars and um, an acceptance letter, so I started studying um, as soon as I arrived, I did philosophy, and that was amazing, incredible. Um, probably not the best thing to study if you're thinking about getting a job afterwards, but it's one of those subjects that you do it because you're passionate about it. And actually it, it was good because I wasn't just being told facts. I was being taught how to think, um, and how to see 12 different sides of every issue. And I think that that's a really, really important skill, especially today when I think a lot of political discourse is very black and white. It's very this or that, and it's important to appreciate and recognize that. There are lots of different points of view on every topic. Um, And if someone disagrees with you, it's just that they think differently, not that they're necessarily a terrible person, which I'm not sure a lot of people get these days.
1: Did uh, Marcus Aurelius feature in your course?
2: No, unfortunately not. Um, We didn't do too many of the ancient Romans. We did predominantly ancient Greek and I did a lot of modern um, French and German philosophy. I was very, very interested in the more continental writers because they tended to write about things like love and passion and the meaning of life. And I found logic really, really boring. Um, But in hindsight, a lot of what I read didn't really go anywhere. Like a lot of the kind of postmodern philosophy is just really flowery language. Um, and there's not really much of a point to it. You're just basically reading someone's diary. Uh, I'm going to get in big trouble for saying that with some of my old professors, actually. But um, in, in hindsight, I should have done more of the logic. Um, but I, you know, I, I loved Albert Camus, um, Jean-Paul Sartre. Um, really, my favourite philosopher is Aristotle, because I think out of all of the things I read, that was probably the most practical. Philosophy I read, where there's there's actually an impact in the way that you live your life and the way that society should be structured. I thought that was, yeah, Aristotle was my favourite, and that's why on my Twitter profile I say that I self-identify as an Aristotelian.
0: Aristotelian, um,
2: excellent. Yeah. Never heard of that. Yep. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> one up. of the many genders. Uh-huh. <laughs>
1: so there's so, now an LGBTA. Uh...
2: Exactly. Yeah. When did you
0: become interested in social media? So what was that process? I
2: I think every young person, I, I'm 25 now. I think every person in my generation had social media in high school. So when I was in high school, it was all about MySpace. Um, yes. yes.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. And, and MSN Messenger. <laughs> I remember <laughs> rushing home so you could chat to your friends on MSN. Oh, wow. I also I tell my younger friends about this, and they think I'm so old. They're like, what's Messenger?
0: Well, people say I've, Facebook's old, old hat now. You know, the young I kids. still
2: like Facebook. Yeah. Facebook's good because you keep in touch with your family. I don't do Instagram or any of that stuff because it's very much about trying an image. I like Twitter because it's just kind of like a rolling kind of insight into someone's brain, which is really interesting. Um, So I've been on Twitter since I was about 15, but a lot of my older tweets are about how much I hate maths and physical education at school. (laughs) Nothing (laughs) Nothing too enlightening in those early years.
1: It's just the reason I mentioned Marcus Aurelius is because I find that particularly in, a, I, mean, I think we'll almost immediately get, get onto the topic of Brexit, but the I find that modern life is potentially so depressing that unless you can adopt some kind of stoic attitude towards it, you'll never get out alive.
2: That's a really good point. Well, I, I, I don't know if things are, are bad in the everyday sense. I think if you're constantly you know, involved in discussions about Brexit and discussions about politics, you probably won't have a very good world a view of the world because you're constantly around people who are adversaries I think um, but I don't know I think in terms of everyday life in Britain people seem pretty okay like I, I make a point of trying to stay off Twitter on the weekends because um, my interactions with people in my community and in you know, my neighbours and my, you know, my church and people at the corner shop is very positive and so I think you can get, well. Oh, I did definitely, when I first started in politics, get so sucked into it, always talking about politics. It just can make you incredibly depressed. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you were involved in the um, Vote Leave uh, campaign, weren't you?
2: I was, I was.
1: How did that happen?
2: Um, Just by chance and by an incredibly persistent young Australian constantly emailing, asking, can I please help? Um, I, I was working for an MP uh, and... Then I decided that I really wanted to campaign for Brexit, um, and that MP didn't agree with my Brexit position. So I, yeah, had to sadly leave because I didn't, I didn't want to work for someone who was going to advocate something that I didn't believe in. I thought that would be too difficult to do, um, and so yeah, I just got got on. I was very, I started off very, very junior. But I expressed an interest in creative videos, and I said, I've, "I've not really done this before, but if you take a chance on me, I could produce some great content." I, I was so I had such a hubris when I was um when I was younger. This is what three years ago. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> sure I'd have the confidence to do that now. You know, when you're young, you just don't care. You just say what's in your mind. So I, I, I really pushed, um, and I got some great opportunities. And by the end of the campaign, I was doing a lot of our um video content and and some, some of the graphics, um, it was really, really fun. It was, it was actually incredible. And three years ago today, I was in the HQ watching the results come through and we all thought we were going to lose. There are very few of us that really thought we were going to win, but you know, we gave it our all. And then on results night, it was just such an incredible feeling of you know watching all the results come through and seeing as well the images of people, Brexit supporters at the count There was just so much positivity that night. We were getting phone calls from activists across the country who were like, I can't believe it. Everyone in my community is having a street party. And there was such a mixed reaction where in certain regions and towns, this was like such a liberating, happy, exciting time. And the first time they thought that change was possible. But then in other regions of the UK, it was the worst possible thing that could ever happen. And certainly in London, I think in certain areas, I can imagine the next day would have been, awful. Um, you know, and, and I don't want to belittle that because there are a lot of people that felt that people felt strongly on both sides of this. And it was a very important decision. So either way, you were going to have a lot of people incredibly disappointed in the results. Um, and we still have a long way to go in the healing process. I don't think it's been particularly helpful that for the past three years, lots and lots of campaign groups have prophesied off and found some success in really stoking up resentment of Leave voters. I found a lot of the kind of second referendum campaign groups have actually furthered those divisions by saying, yep, yeah, they were all thick. They were all racist or they were all right. Lied to or, or you know, the bus or trying to, you know, kind of put forward this idea that the vote was wrong and it wasn't legitimate. And by doing that, you give people that were disappointed in the results a kind of hope like, oh, yeah, maybe it wasn't legitimate, maybe actually um, half the country are racist and and i just don't like how that has stoked up division i mean certainly there's been people on the brexit side of things that haven't helped um and i don't like you know a lot of the abuse that some of my remain supporting friends get i don't see where we go from here i think i but i don't think that i don't think this constant postponing of leaving the eu is going to do anything <laughs> to um to help the country heal i think we've got to get out we've absolutely got to get out
0: i think part of the problem is that there's people who feel that there's a chance that it won't happen, and therefore it, it just creates so much uncertainty that there's even a chance that it might not happen. So those, obviously, who want to remain, are being given this this carrot that we're going to stay, and those, obviously, who voted for Brexit, are just want it to happen and get out of the way. So we're kind of caught in this very difficult situation, and the media itself is not helping.
2: I don't think so, No. Um, and it's, I don't think that, because I do a lot of bit of work in the media and the producers I've met, I'm not sure that they really necessarily are aware sometimes of the bias. Um, they don't know that they're doing it because they they just, you know, they don't mix with people like me or they don't mix with many leaf voters. And so they don't know that when you use a certain tone of voice or when you talk about Brexit being, you know, a catastrophe or, or no deal is crashing out. It does come across as being incredibly biased and it does fuel this idea that those that work in the media in London are so out of touch with the country. Um, and I don't think it's intentional. It's just the fact that they don't know many people <laughs> that voted leave. You know, they all go to the same dinner parties and um, probably egg each other on in, in how, how right they are about things. Um,
0: but, I, you know, I've got a confession to make here because, you know, I, I kind of... I'm more involved in markets. I'm not so driven by politics because, for me, I just get too upset and angry. It seems fairly simple to me that we had a, a referendum and then, you know, legally, this is what should have, what should happen. And then you, you kind of look at the media trying to make out that everything's bad in the UK all the time. House prices were supposed to crash. Um, stock market was supposed to crash. The economy was supposed to have already gone to pot, but it hasn't. And then you read, well, three years after Brexit, things are now finally starting to slow down. You sort of read headlines like that as though, oh, you know, like it couldn't just be that things are slowing down because, you know, our economy has been doing much better than Europe anyway. It's because of Brexit. So, you know, we've had bad weather. So it's because of Brexit, obviously. Um <laughs> You know, everything gets blamed on Brexit. It just becomes tedious. If if nothing else, it's like, can we just not have some balance here?
2: Yeah, and as as well, the, this it's so ironic that um, you know, people, these second referendum campaign and say their their top concern is, is that of business. I mean, if if uncertainty is the enemy of of prosperity, then what do they think a second referendum is going to do? Yeah, I, I don't think this uncertainty about the date that we're leaving and the manner in which we're leaving is incredibly helpful at all I think that most businesses are prepared and if they're not saying so publicly they are privately for any scenario they just need to know what the scenario is going to be and they need notice Absolutely. Um, and this constant uncertainty is is not helping anyone I mean there are lots of I'm sure there's lots of um industries you'd know better than I which would be looking to perhaps invest in Britain on the Prospects of it becoming actually more enterprise friendly after Brexit, um, but they might be holding back now, wondering whether or not Britain's actually going to leave, or if if Britain leaves with a deal, which means that it's very tied to European regulation, then you know what's the point of of, of Brexit? What's the point? You know, you're not maximising on that opportunity to to be different.
1: To what extent were economic factors uh, important in your decision to support the leave? Versus the Remain campaign, Chloe.
2: That's a good question, um, because a lot of the campaign was from the Leave side was not about economics. It was about sovereignty um, and taking back control of key decision-making powers. For example, how who decides how taxes are spent, um, who who decides what trade deals are going to look like, and of course, um, you know who decides what our immigration policy is going to be. Um, it didn't play a huge factor because I think there are some things which are more important than economic growth. So, for you know, for example, I would rather live in a, in a democratic society where people have free speech and free expression, as a, and and perhaps isn't doing as well economically, than live in you know China with a regime which means there's no democracy, no freedom of the press, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. However, on the campaign, I met so many business people businesses who supported Brexit that were, had so many I mean, specific. Um, complaints about what the EU had meant for their business, how it had stopped them from growing or how it had you know, inc- increased the burden. And as well, I had a general sense that the, the exciting growth, and especially in, in technology and in services, all of that you know, exciting prosperity, it's all happening outside the EU. Um, and I'm from, I'm from Australia, and I, ret- I return home a lot, and there's a very strong business relationship with the Asian markets. And that's been fantastic for the Australian economy. And when you look at what is happening in Silicon Valley and what is happening outside the EU, that is actually the future. Um, I don't think I don't think you know the EU is is the is the future um, region that Britain should be looking to do business with. So I had I had a broad sense as well of that being a huge opportunity for for Brexit and especially on the trade side. I mean there are so many countries that would love to do a free trade agreement with the United Kingdom, but just don't have the capacity to do an agreement with the EU because you're waiting for 10 years and negotiating with 27, 28 different countries. It's probably just not not worth as much of the effort, but um, so I think there are huge economic opportunities. But the, the main drivers, I think, for people voting Brexit was not economics. It, it wasn't this will personally gain me financially. It was long term. I think this country should be a democratic country. And I don't like the idea of people that I don't elect making decisions about tax policy, immigration policy and trade policy. Do you
1: think we're going to leave at the end of October?
2: I don't know. I've become so sceptical now that I really won't believe it until I see it. I think think there needs to be a lot of pressure put on whoever becomes prime minister to get that done as soon as possible. The real concern, I think, is yeah, even within the Conservative Party, there are MPs that don't want Brexit to happen. And you look at Theresa May's cabinet, and there were people around that cabinet who did weren't behind Brexit, who thought there should be a second referendum. And so I just don't see how Britain can leave effectively if the Prime Minister voted remain and want to remain. If the cabinet, most of the cabinet, are not on board with it, and if so many of the MPs are not on board with it, I've been quite shocked actually at the amount of people, the amount of particularly conservative MPs who have really stood in the way of of this happening. I get from Labour's point of view, they just want to cause trouble for the government. That's their job as opposition. But the internal opposition to Brexit has been quite phenomenal, and so that's that's why I'm sceptical.
1: It's, it was a disappointment to me. I mean, I, I don't know that many politicians. The one MP I've met who's in the current parliament is Steve Baker. And it was a, a, a deep disappointment to me that he, he didn't stand. But I think I understand the reasons why he didn't stand. But he's, he's now endorsed uh, Boris. Um, what I find staggering is that, I mean, the way, the way I describe this, which may or may not be a fair analogy, is that the, the whole Brexit process has been like lifting up a rock and nobody in the entire country can quite believe the kind of appalling pond life that's scuttling underneath that rock. So it's not just a political problem. It's a media problem. It's a cultural problem. Um, take, take news media, for example, please. Because um, I mean, I've, got a, I've, I've now got a second quixotic campaign, a petition to uh, revoke the royal charter of the BBC. I cannot believe the appalling bias of the, of the state of the state broadcaster in this country.
2: It's shocking, isn't it?
1: I think we are being very poorly served by people who are being paid very, very well, and some of that money is coming from Europe. So, effectively, it means we're, we're sending the money out, it comes back, and we're, we're subsidising people who I would I, not unreasonably say are, are not acting in our national interest.
2: Well, I don't understand how it can be in the national interest to persistently talk down good news about the economy in particular um, and talk out bad news. I mean, I think there's such there's such an emphasis on wanting to be proved right by some people that advocated remain that they almost hope that things go terribly i mean can you i don't i can't understand that mindset i mean if you live in the uk surely you would want the best for your country surely if there is good news you should be celebrating it you know if i if i was a road remain and i thought brexit was going to be a terrible disaster i wouldn't be willing to a disaster just to prove myself right, so my ego feels good, I would be hoping that the country would be okay. And of course, the country is going to be okay.
1: What does it say about you know, a Tory MP, no names, Dominic Grieve, who would <laughs> rather who would rather bring down his own government and potentially allow in a, a Marxist government on the back of it, rather than simply deliver on something that he originally promised to deliver in the first place with the last manifesto? I mean, it, it beggars belief.
2: It, it does. It's absolutely, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. Um, and I don't understand it, I don't, uh, is it an ego thing, is it, as I said, or, or does, you know, if if he really, really, really believed that Brexit was the worst thing that could possibly happen and Britain should remain in the EU, he should have run on that platform at the election. He should have told his constituents, I don't want Brexit to happen. If you elect me, I'm going to try and stop Brexit. If he had done that, then I think people would have more respect for him and people like him. But it's the fact that so many have explicitly told their constituents, there are videos of this in 2017 saying to their constituents, if you vote for me, I will make sure that Brexit happens. And then they get into parliament and make speeches about why we should have a second referendum. It's, it's just extraordinary. Um, and so the argument that you, you know, you vote for, and M- you know, this whole argument that, um, yeah, well, MPs are elected and parliament's taking back control. Well, they're kind of yes and no. I mean, if, if MPs are allowed to, and it's becoming normalised and fine for MPs to say one thing at an election, and then do the complete opposite when they're in Parliament, then you know maybe we need to think about you know some some harsher penalties, or you know maybe if they do that, if they break a mani- if they vote against a manifesto commitment, they should have their pay docked. I don't know, um, but there needs to be something ha- to happen to restore a bit of trust.
0: From the outside, you know. W- for example, in, in Australia, what do, what do they think of all of this? Or do you have a handle on that at all?
2: Uh, it's hard. I really only speak about this with my friends and family mm-hmm. who were a bit surprised that I was getting involved in in, yeah. the whole, in the whole Brexit thing. I said, trust me, trust me, this is important. And they're like, okay. Um, there isn't an appreciation, I think, in, in, outside of, of the UK um, that the European Union is not just a trading relationship. I think the way it's reported in other countries is as if it's similar to ASEAN or some of the other trading relationships around the world. And so for, if if that's what you think the EU is then you might be a bit surprised that people have voted to leave. But when I explain, you know, I give the analogy, imagine if for example, you know, China, Japan and Australia entered a trading relationship but then they had a common parliament whereby things such as VAT Um, you know, immigration policy, trade policy, all sorts of regulations about business were all decided by that parliament instead of in in Canberra. And furthermore, the ones writing the rules were unelected officials and the elected representatives sent over couldn't really change them. I mean, and then when you frame it like that, people go, oh, I wouldn't stand for that. You know, I I wouldn't stand for, um, you know, unelected officials writing rules that are going to impact on my life. And so I think when you explain it, People understand and appreciate why, people, why, why the country voted that way. But the way it's reported around the world, I think, um, doesn't appreciate the political aspect of the EU. It just focuses on the trade.
1: So let's go back, uh, back a little bit. Uh, tell us a bit more about the Taxpayers' Alliance. What precisely does, does it do? What is the mission? I mean, I appreciate it's probably in the title, but.
2: You know. Yeah. Taxpayers' Alliance. Well, first of all, we're great. Um, we're a group <laughs> of about, just, just to put it out there. We're a group of about 10 people, 10 or 12, some, some part-time, um, who work in a... We share a room in Westminster, and we have a, a bit of a research team that spend their days going through government reports, um, budgets, trying to find any, any wasteful spending, sending Freedom of Information requests to councils, to national government, to try and get an idea of what taxpayers' money is being spent on. So exposing a lot of waste, but also doing some long-term thinking about... How the tax system needs to change, how it needs to be simplified um, and also how it might need to adapt to the digital age and also the international age um, and how we can you know, deal with companies that are multinationals that um, don't people don't think they're paying their fair share, but the, the, the tax system legally hasn't caught up with the times. And so what they're doing is completely legal. So I think to restore a bit of faith in the tax system, you need to be able to redesign it so that multinationals do pay a little bit more. Um, so that the, you know, the poor, you know, small business paying their business rates doesn't feel like that it is an unfair system. We also do, uh, you know, I do the media side of things. So I, I appear in a lot of programs and kind of give the perspective of, you know, to try to give the perspective of a taxpayer. So um, in Westminster, there are lots of discussions about spending money on this or that, putting up this tax, um, you know, giving these people a pay rise. And there's very rarely anyone in the room thinking about the people actually paying for these things. And so it's really, really helpful, I think, to have one or two people like me in the media constantly saying, yes, but is this, is, you know would do taxpayers actually, would they want this to happen? Is, is it a good idea to be putting up taxes when we've got the highest tax burden in 50 years? And could this be privately funded? I mean, there are lots of things in that the government pays for that I think there'd be a lot of private investment for. So, for example, Sadiq Khan spent millions of pounds on some fireworks for, for New Year's Eve. Uh, what company wouldn't want to sponsor fireworks on New Year's Eve, you know? So there are lots of things like that where I just try to provide an alternative perspective. There are not many kind of small state, small government people doing what I do right now. Um, and so with the taxpayers' minds, what I think about is, well, what would the country be like if there weren't groups like ours? Probably, probably not as good. <laughs> so, yeah, I hope that's a kind of decent overview.
1: Are you familiar with a chap called Dominic Frisby?
2: Yes. Dominic's great. He's writing a book about tax.
1: Yes, because yes. I I know he's got a routine. Let's talk about tax. And I've, I've seen a few of his shows. And I mean, f- a fair play to anybody who is able to make the, the the business of tax be interesting.
2: Yeah. Well, when I explain to um, friends, like what so what's your job involved, and I'm like, well, tax policy. They're not exactly um, excited to talk about me. Usually, that's a that's a conversation ender. Um, but I think it's really interesting. It's important. It's, it, you know, it has such a big impact on the economy, on our lives. And there are so many taxes that you don't know you're paying until you really think about it. And then I just think about how, particularly on the lower income spectrum, how living standards could be improved by not the government handing out this or handing out that or trying to do this program, but just letting people keep more of their money. It's so simple. And you have all these politicians saying, you know, how can we help poorer families? How can we do this? Well, we're taking quite a lot of money away from them, um, especially through the consumer taxes um, and, and sin taxes. So, you know, I, I do think I do try to just keep in mind. You know, my biggest priority is probably those that are not doing very well because I think they get screwed over by the tax system. Um, you know, the most it has a huge impact on their life, especially things like council tax um, and the TV tax, which is you know way too expensive and just shouldn't exist. And uh, yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? The BBC. The, the I would say their viewership would be quite older um, because a lot of young people are switching to you know, Netflix, Amazon. So I would say that a lot of their viewership are, are older, probably more likely leave voters. And yet the BBC is completely failing to represent most of the people paying that TV tax.
0: And so if you find a instance where you feel that there's been a waste of, of tax money, what what would be the process? What, what happens there other than going into the media to talk about it? Can you reprimand the government or the local council or how does it work?
2: <laughs> well, really, the media is the only way we can reprimand public figures because public are our biggest asset, our activists. So we, we do have quite a few activists and quite a few kind of regional groups across the country that do their own thing. And we, you know, we, we kind of give them some of the branding, but they look into their own local council's wasteful spending. They'll put it in the local press. They'll get lots of residents to write in. And then you just hope that they learn their lesson it can feel like you're not getting anywhere but there have been quite a few policy victories and quite a few things that the government has leaked they're thinking about doing something people like us have said absolutely not you know for example on fuel duty if you don't if you unfreeze fuel duty it's going to hurt this many people this you know people are going to be angry um and then the government's kind of rode back on that and thought oh yeah actually we might not do that so every now and then we're going win But it's we have to just be constant. We're constantly out there. We're constantly exposing, you know, wasteful spending. And I hope that public officials, when they're drawing up policy, just kind of think twice. They go, oh, actually, we might we might get blasted in the media by the Taxpayers Alliance if we waste this money. Do you think we could, you know, go for the cheaper supplier? I hope we have that impact. That's what I hope for.
0: I remember in the um, going back a few years to the early '90s, the BCCI scandal, which was a bank that was paying very high interest rates, um, that, that went bust. And then we found that the uh, you know the local councils had, had deposited millions of pounds with them, and all that money was lost. And the question that many people asked at the time was, how on earth have they got millions of pounds if they're charging? so much in council tax every year and saying they need more and more money when they've obviously got millions sitting in the bank. And it's just this kind of opaqueness that we we don't know about, that it's great that we have people like you that are, that are trying, you know, to to uncover what is actually going on. You've only got 12 people. You should have a whole I team.
2: I I'm- know. Well, people assume that we're much bigger than we are because we punch way above our weight. We're, we We get a lot of press coverage because... We are, you know, I think we're pretty good actually. We work really long hours. Um, I work a lot of weekends where I'm on duty on the phone for journalists. Um, we we just put out so much stuff, and so people assume there's like 40, 50 of us, but there's only about 12 of us. But it's so interesting as well when you compare. So I'm the entire press team for the Taxpayers lights, just me. Wow. Um, but a lot of these government departments have like 10, 20 people, and journalists say, I called through to this press team at this government department, and they won't answer the phone. And there's like 10 of them. Meanwhile, there's just one of me, but you can guarantee I'll always pick up the phone. I think yeah, that's you can of the surely reason you can, we do well. You
1: can, you can surely use different voices though. I'll just be using <laughs> <through> my system.
0: <laughs> that's what Tim does anyway.
1: <laughs> that's how I do uh, it, yeah.
0: I mean, that that's incredible. So just, just 12 people. So how, how do you survive it? I mean, what you should be able to do is if you find an instance of tax money being wasted, you should get like 50% of it.
2: <laughs> no, I'd want to give that back to taxpayers, actually. Well, that's yeah,
0: good. but you've got to... You know, you, you got to keep fighting the good fight.
2: Yeah. Well, we, um, I mean, anyone that wants to help us out, you can donate on our website, taxpayersalliance.com forward slash donate. We have quite a few thousand personal donors who kind of give us um, sometimes some, sometimes, you know, just five quid a month. And it's really like any other kind of charity or political organization, although we're not charity. Um, so we don't take any tax breaks or anything or, or claim that.
1: Um. I have a feeling I've seen a video of you, and this, this, is, this is a perfect it's a glimpse of, of human nature, that you say, would you, when you do Vox Pops with people and you say, would you be willing to pay a bit more tax? And they go, oh, yes, definitely. And it's like, well, hey, here's a way you can do it. Do you want to just complete this form? And they go, well, yeah. actually, I'm not, I want to do it right now.
2: Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. That's, that's the thinking. It's, as it's, 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 well, someone else should pay more tax um or the, the corporations should pay more tax and i i feel like saying you do realize that corporations are just groups of people um so at the end of the day you know no 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 robots are paying tax it's it's just people so either consumers through higher costs for their products or you know the staff at that organization who aren't going to get that pay rise because taxes have gone up so um there's this bizarre idea out there that if we could just tax the corporations um or tax the rich people th- that's not how it works um But it's a really simple argument to make. And my job would be so much easier if I was left wing. Like I I imagine sometimes I fantasize about if I was left wing, I could go in the media and they'd treat me really nicely. Um, I'd have lots of support because people would think I was a good person. And I could just say with any problem, we just need to tax the rich. We just need to spend more money and problem solved. But um it's not difficult making the argument for free market solutions because whilst they work, they so obviously work when you look at every society on earth, they so obviously work, it does take a longer time to explain why a low tax economy is better for everyone, as opposed to just saying the kind of simple, you know, put up taxes, spend more money, everyone's happier.
1: So given that, why why is there still the 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 the, the, the significant risk of people electing uh John McDonnell and um, Jeremy Corbyn into number 10 and number 11?
2: That's a good question. Um, I, I actually think it comes from privilege. If you are so privileged to have only lived in this kind of society, to have only lived in a society which has so much convenience, so much prosperity, um, such high living standards and such freedom, actually, that you wouldn't know What it's like to not live in that society and so if you're so privileged to have only experienced this someone coming along and saying i want to do this drastic thing to help people and to alleviate suffering i can appreciate why that message is very powerful to someone that has never lived in a socialist or far-left country Um, and i also think particularly with young people you know, I I still feel like this sometimes. If I see someone in need, it's incredibly upsetting to see any human being suffering, and you want to do something about it. And so, in every society, um, although less so in Western societies, there are still people suffering. There are still there are still problems in society. There are still you know fatherless homes and and you know there are still food banks in this country because the government completely effed up the benefit system. Sorry, excuse my French. So you see problems in society and you feel like I want to alleviate that suffering. And someone like Jeremy Corbyn comes along and says, I have a very simple solution to alleviate suffering. That's a very, you know, I can understand why someone would say, yeah, let's try that. But the other side of that argument is actually that all all of the evidence in every human society around the world is that actually, you know, there are two things that alleviate poverty and suffering, and that is uh, free markets and the rule of law. If you have both of those things, then, you know, society is going to be OK. But every time someone's come in and tried to shake that up and take away some of those freedoms and to g- completely grow the state, that's always ended in, in misery. Um, and. I'm not sure if maybe there's a problem in the education system. Or I, was just, I... I
1: was just going to say the thing I'd add would be education. So, for, 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 I mean, Paul and I will both be able to remember, for example, acts of sort of IRA terrorism dating back to the 70s, which I think, I mean, I won't put, put words in Paul's mouth, but I can speak for myself at least. There is no way in a million years I could ever vote for the Labour Party under its current, let's say, under current management. But if you weren't alive then, You've got no practical experience of that, therefore, their association with IRA terrorism does not factor at all. In other words, the the the, the re I'm kind of answering my own question. The the reason why you know the reason why Corbyn is 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 within breathing uh, space of number ten is because our our educational system has catastrophically failed.
2: Well, how many young people really know what happened in communist China or the Soviet Union? Um, the, the 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 true story the real story I I, ha- I went through education in Australia so I can't speak from experience over here
1: how does how does the how does the Aussie uh, system work
2: it's it's all right it's all right I had a good time um, I, I liked school I was a bit of a nerd so I'm probably not a good person to ask because I loved you know learning and I was I set off to class I tapped to teachers I was such a strange weird kid um, strange adult as well. Um, and so I did the, I ended up doing the international baccalaureate in my final two years of school, which was really, really good. Um, highly recommend for anyone. Um, and that was fantastic because we did history subjects where we were encouraged to look at two sides of a story, um, and to do our own research. Um, it it was fantastic, but I think the Australian system was pretty good. I mean, we covered a lot of Asian history as well as European history, um, covered the, the good and the awful of the empire, which is. I don't think taught at all in, to young people today. I think in Britain, people feel so awkward about, or so ashamed of some of the awful stuff that happened um, because there was a lot of you know, awful violent acts from from the British Empire, but there was also a lot of you know, trade going on. It was a, a fascinating time in global history and um, it's not really taught at all in schools, perhaps because maybe the country doesn't know how to teach it without just making it into a, Class about why Britain's the worst country or whatever. I don't know, but it's it's so strange that there was a huge emphasis on um, Nazi Germany, but nothing about the communist regimes until I um, independently sought to do some assessments on that in my final years with the international program. So that's interesting, and I hear it's the same over here in, in the UK as well. There's a lot of emphasis, a lot of everyone's taught about. Two World Wars and of um, you know, Nazi Germany and also fascism in Italy, but not so much taught about some of the atrocities uh, that you know from communist states, like the Khmer Rouge and you know what happened in China. So um, it'd be interesting actually to have someone look into that and find out whether there are any mentions of communist regimes and the terrorists um, in the education system in the UK.
1: It's interesting you mentioned that because I remember. I've got an anecdotal example from my own uh, time at school, which is we, we had, I think we got maybe a full, a full history lesson devoted to, the, um, to Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the New Deal. And what I recall of that was basically, you had, so you had the crash, then you had the Great Depression. And then the way it was effectively conveyed to us was this guy called FDR was then parachuted in and the New Deal sold everything. and. I look at that now, and I think mm, I'm not sure I can really buy any of that nonsense. Uh, and there is an alternative view, which is the thing that saved America in the '30s was the Second World War. You know, the, what what caused the U.S. economy to recover was basically war-related spending. So the the idea, and now and I went to, a, I'd say I'd say tolerably decent school, but you know, one of the more meaningful and significant things to have happened in. Uh, in financial history was kind of just dismissed in a not just glib way, but probably a, a technically incorrect way, I would argue. So the, you know, the role of the educational system in teaching people about how the world actually works. I mean, We, we had Chris, Christopher Snowden from the IEA on a while back. I'm not sure if he mentioned it, but we, we've definitely discussed it with previous guests. And the phrase, the long march through the institutions has come up, which is the reason the educational system is so poor is because it's full of Marxists.
2: Well, quite. Um, I'm not sure if it's any kind of coordinated thing, though. I think that if you are, if you lean towards the left, you probably want to work in the public sector because you think the state's a you know, really, really good thing. And if you lean towards the right and you think private enterprise is what helps people, then you're going to go into private enterprise. So I think it's probably, I don't think it's any kind of coordinated conspiracy. I think it's just, you know, leniency. People tend to choose different paths based on um what they think is gonna do the most good, good in the world. There are some really sound teachers. Um, I just think they're they they're afraid of actually admitting that they are sound, that they they're, that they're not socialists. There's a big kind of emphasis on groupthink, I think. On Brexit as well. You know, I, it must be difficult. It must be a lot easier to be a teacher if you're a teacher that agrees with what we're saying in this podcast. I wouldn't blame you for keeping your head down and just pretending you voted Corbyn and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, because it must just be easier socially to get through the working day. But I, I, do, I do worry a little bit about that. The one thing I would say is, unless you were a nerd like me that thought teachers were awesome, so I was a dork. A lot of young people are actually quite skeptical of authority, and they, you know, just because a teacher says something doesn't necessarily mean you're going to take it all in, and so. I, I don't think you know young people are indoctrinated too much because I do have a bit of faith in their ability to be able to Google things for themselves. But maybe I'm just being a bit too
0: optimistic about that. And so that's a very good point because now you can educate yourself. And you, whereas when Tim and I were at school, you had to t- sort of take the textbooks and what the teacher told you as uh, as gospel. As but now you can do so much of your own research. But um, I think another element to this is also the simplification of explanations of problems so if you if you needed to sort of break it all down and say brexit is bad and um or brexit is good people want simple answers to things that are very complex the whole system is very complex like for example you know the economy may go downhill straight after brexit but then it may accelerate twice as fast in two years time and surpass all the other economies once we've got through this process but everybody's focused on that that initial period where things might be bad so you're focusing on the wrong element of the problem you know if you if you're if you're building a house and the foundations are wrong you've got to stop strip it all out and start again that's going to take a long time if somebody just keeps going you know they'll end up finishing before you but then theirs is going to be A bigger problem down the road and that's that's essentially a a kind of um how the european union's worked it's sort of built upon you know problem after problem that needs to be retrospectively solved that they just sort of kick down the road kick the problem further down the road and let somebody else sort it out and nobody's willing to do the 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 thing that needs to be done which is basically to break up the euro and so you've got all these different pressures that are that are affecting the markets. That what will at some point, as we know from what happened in Asia when their currencies were linked to the dollar, um, they will all break out. And so th- this is how teaching kind of works. It's all it's all done in retrospect after the event, but nobody can. It, it's very difficult to explain how a complex system can um, be badly affected by something that actually later on can be very very positive and everybody's so focused on the short term I think that that lends itself to all this all these like short-term headlines saying whether things are good or bad or not and everybody's sort of you know shrieking that the economy's contracting um, or house prices have come down a little bit or whatever um, there, there's just an oversensitivity to this and nobody seems to be looking at the long term.
2: Mm. That's You're so right and I think There is a lack of an entrepreneurial spirit, Um, you know, risk taking. If you don't take any risks, there's absolutely no reward. And if you just keep your money in your bank account, you actually end up losing money. Um, But if you, you know, I I think there's a lack of, lack of drive, not necessarily with individuals in this country, but at least with the political class, a lack of incentive to change anything for fear of it not going the way that they expect or, but, but you can't. You can't manage things. You can't live life never actually making a decision. Um, And you have to make the decision and say, okay, there's going to be some positive and some negative impacts to this. But overall, this is the best possible thing to do. Um, The the kind of fear of any negative consequences, I think, is really stopping politicians actually not just on Brexit, but on anything, deciding to take action, deciding to actually stake a claim. I mean, watch, watch interviews with the majority of High-profile politicians—they're terrified to stake a claim either way. It's always on the one hand, on the other. Um, There's very, very few people willing to kind of stake themselves onto an idea and say, "Yep, this is what we're going to do." And that's that's a problem. Things, things, things don't move that way. Things don't change that way. Um, And you're so right on the long-term, you know, impact as well. Um, And this idea that independence is a a terrible thing—that's going to be the worst. It really does depend. It depends on what everyone does. It depends on whether the government puts in, you know, the right pro-growth, pro-enterprise policies. It's about, you know, whether there are entrepreneurs in this country willing to to take risks and build on the opportunities. It depends on a lot of things, but it's a huge opportunity. And it's it's really not just down to politicians, you know. i I get really sick of you know talking about the fate of the nation as though it all hangs in the balance of of you know a few bureaucrats what the, the deal that they decide and the manner in which we leave will have a big impact. But I think the greater impact will be all of the millions of people in this country and their decisions and, and what, what they do. You know, politicians don't necessarily, they're not the ones that make this country a success or a failure. It's all the people and businesses around the country that do.
1: One of, one of my favorite books is a book called 40 Centuries of Wage and Price Controls. Um, so like you, I am a nerd. And uh, the, 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 the story there is all in the title. That, that basically, for as long as modern man has existed, governments have always felt obliged to basically interfere with the economy. And all of those, you know, those moments of interference lead to knock-on effects that make the problem invariably worse. So it's worse than what you've said in terms of politicians sitting on their hands, because half the time politicians also feel the need to act where they should simply do nothing. But the mm-hmm. first instinct of someone who's on a four-year electoral cycle is, well, we need to do something, and then maybe, maybe it won't be my problem in five years' time. So mm-hmm. it's, it's constant interference, um, a constant pro pro you know, program of, of of just mucking around with stuff. The, the 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 educational syllabus being a classic example. I don't think it's it, it's it's they feel obligated to change the thing every couple of years, and it's it always ends in a in a in a disaster.
2: Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's so many stupid things that come out of, you know, government press departments that I receive in my inbox and because I'm being approached for a comment and I just think, goodness, you know, (laughs) like, why, why, they're they're looking into banning uh, meal deals because apparently that means we're having, you know, too much sugar. Um, There's just, there's so many little creepy interventionalist things that are happening. There was going to be a new ban on watching porn, like, come on, like, there's so much, yeah. There's so much crap that comes out of government departments about how they're going to make our lives better and you know boss us around. I just think if you want to help people, leave them alone, get out of you, the way. You, I you don't think prob- understand that.
1: You're probably too young to remember the Cones Hotline, which was uh, an inspired policy of John Major. I think shortly after Sterling got ethnically cleansed from the ERM in 1992. But you know, you think, well, we're just having this sort of disastrous economic failure, so. Let's have, a, let's have a hotline so you can call up about rogue traffic cones on the motorway.
2: <laughs> oh, my goodness.
1: So fantasy cabinet time. Um, oh, okay. so, so it's, it's, it's it's it seems, I mean, I don't want to jinx things, but it seems almost certain that the unstoppable force that is Boris Johnson is likely to be the next Tory leader and prime minister, even if only for 24 hours until he's dethroned by a bunch of quizzling scum in the Tory party. <laughs> um, but, but moving on beyond the prime minister, who, who would be your fantasy um, chancellor?
2: Liz Truss. That's an yep. easy one. Yeah, she's great. She actually has ideas. And you can disagree with them. But she's one of the few that, asks, that goes on TV and says, this policy would be great. Come debate me about it. As opposed to wishy-washy you know, PR speak. She's very, very good. I, I give her a go. And I happen to agree with all of her ideas.
1: Okay, so let's trust the chancellor. So how about Brexit secretary?
2: Ooh, either Steve Baker or Dominic Raab. We need a hardcore, hardcore no. Brexit secretary.
1: Yeah, we we need our Brexit hard, fast, and easy.
2: <laughs> absolutely.
1: Paul, you got any any, any nominations?
0: Uh, no, no, no. I stay out of politics, me. Yeah, no. I, my, my questions would be, you know, if you were to, if you were given ten times the budget, the Taxpayers Alliance. What would you do with it?
2: Such a good, such a good question. Um, there are lots of personal projects that I would love to do that would tie into it. I think that a documentary on what exactly the policies that have led to this collapse in Venezuela—I I think someone needs to do some work on that. Someone needs to actually put together a detailed, you know, paper and video on here are all the policies they tried. Here's where they didn't work. Um, because they also happen to be a lot of the policies that Jeremy Corbyn wants to put through. I think that would be far more effective than just saying, oh, socialism's bad because look at Venezuela. We need to actually explain the specific policies and why they're bad. Um, that's so that, interesting. That's something that I'd really, really like to do.
1: There is, there is a video of Daniel Hannan, uh, I, I know because I saw it last week, video of Daniel Hannan speaking at the Oxford Union about five years ago, and the topic is basically this. House believes that socialism is 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 a bad bad idea. He he's needs to say speaking in favour of the motion, but Jeremy Corbyn is present, uh, speaking on the other side. Uh, I don't know how, how if you're familiar with Daniel Hannan or, or know him well, but he's, he's a fab, right. he's a fabulous speaker. He's an absolutely fabulous orator, and for me, one of the tragedies of this this current. No, Conservative administrations so that the Tory party was either too dumb or too stubborn to allow him to stand in a constituency in the, uh, in the UK, assuming he wanted to be an MP, which I think at one point he did, but I'm not sure he does anymore.
2: Absolutely. Can you imagine the speeches he'd make in Parliament?
1: I mean, he would just he would just he'd destroy phenomenal. it. It would be like nuking the planet from orbit. on
2: you know, <laughs> would be
1: fantastic. The other side.
2: He doesn't just defend Brexit fiercely. He's also a fierce defender of free market capitalism and, and free trade. He really knows his stuff, probably more than so many of us. And I learned so much from um, watching his videos and reading his articles. Um, he had a lot of energy as well. I think what's lacking a lot on the conservative side is you get these MPs in who are there because they did the hard slog with the party. They leafleted it on the right days. They know the right people. And but they're,
1: not, they're not conservatives. They don't, they don't have a conservative vote well, in their body.
2: Well, I'm not sure many of them really have any policy ideas or any uh, other than I want to wear a blue rosette and I want to be an MP. Uh, maybe that's being a bit harsh, but there's just no energy, no dynamism. I don't know. Like There are a few really good ones, but I'm disappointed. I always really looked up to politicians when I when I was younger. And now I kind of I look up to a few, but generally it's not something that I want to aspire to be one day. Whereas previously, I, I used to think you know, when I was a bit younger, it'd be amazing to be a politician I I look at what they have to do and I look at how they turn out and I'm not sure that's what I want to be. Maybe the machine just makes you into someone who's afraid of saying anything or afraid of thinking your own way. But um, yeah, it's quite disappointing. But Dan Hannan does not disappoint. Yeah, just,
1: that, that reminds that reminds me of um, one of the, one of the best Not the have got News sketches where people are saying I read the Times because I'm interested in blah 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 and I read the Daily Telegraph because blah 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 and then someone says I read the FT because I've got a pink bathroom. <laughs>
2: Yeah,
0: I, I just wanted it, to wanted to circle back to your comment about documentaries. It's interesting that you say you would have one do the, do the work to create a documentary because it's such a it's um it, not usual that people would think in that way. But I think there's such a powerful way to get to people, and not only just to do the work, but actually to get it in front of people, to get it in in a medium that we know that they're going to be watching. Uh, you know, because so many young people watch Netflix and, and Amazon Prime and stuff like that. And if you really want to teach them something, I've seen some amazing documentaries. So I think it's a very good way to do that. So what else would you do if you had this big budget?
2: This is so exciting. I'm I'm actually just fantasizing. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure we're going to get this big budget. But if we did, oh, I hire more policy people. Um, I can hold a thought on the press side of the web. Like, I, I wouldn't mind a bit of help. Um, But we just need more people. Like, we are, we get so many requests to look into different things, and we just don't have the staff to, to take it to the next level. So, we we're sometimes, you know, local person rings up and says, I have a feeling this is going on in my local council or in this government department, and we just don't have the capacity at that time to look into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hate saying no to people, I hate, you know, I don't like doing that, but you have to be smart and prioritize. I also want to commission some kind of long term work on the future of the tax code, taking into account the kind of into the the multi the change in how we're doing business overwhelmingly um, services and overwhelmingly you know across national borders taking that into account and also taking into account technology and thinking about the future you know we are going to automation is going to be huge it's going to change our lives and we need to think about where society goes from that now the far left have ideas about what to do when society is automated. I'm not sure if you've heard of, you know, fully automated luxury communism. It's a thing. No. <laughs> they're, they're, they're thinking about it because it's, it sounds it sounds all right, doesn't it? You know, we just automate all the jobs and everyone can sit back and, and do nothing. But of course, you know, we know that's not how economies work. But doing some serious thinking into planning for the future, planning for, we, we did a little bit of work on this earlier on in the year on automation, planning for job changes. Now, when new technology comes through, you do get a lot of jobs that do become redundant. Whether or not those people stay redundant and unemployed, or move to another job, depends on what other jobs there are out there that are in the future, but also if there are retraining programs. Now, I think it's in private industry. private businesses have a stake in this because they want you know you want well trained, skilled people. So, I think thinking about how the private sector can do more to think about the future in terms of retraining their own staff or other staff in the skills they're going to need for the future, I think that's going to be huge. But these are, um, these are kind of big picture, big picture things. I think probably the most important thing, most practical thing is just getting more staff and getting more policy people to to do those FRI requests and to make those phone calls. Because it is hard work, but it's really, really, really important. Because if we weren't around and if groups like ours weren't around, I just imagine you know what, what, what the state of the country would be like. I'm sure lots of people on the left might listen to this and think, "Oh, it'd be a much better country without you guys." But um, I think we have a positive impact. Absolutely. I mean, is there any way you
0: could get lottery money?
2: I don't think so. I think um, because of the nature of what we do, we are incredibly um, hated.
0: <laughs> really? <laughs> um, but not by yeah, the people. Like, I just not. Know, I don't think as ma- I don't think many people. What? What do I know? To be honest, I'd never heard of the Taxpayers Alliance. If you took a you know a poll of a thousand people, I'd wonder how many people have actually heard of you. But once you know what you're doing, you know people are like, I, who wouldn't be behind you?
2: Well, any anyone who has a stake in there being a big government, and that's a lot of people. Um, and but that's we, not the
0: people. There's more people. No, out
2: there. but it's the, the, the kinds of people that would decide who receives lottery money. Um,
0: right, I see. Yeah, yeah. That's what
2: I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah. So as well, I just I don't think having any kind of connection with government funding would be good. I just mm. so
1: you're, you're completely independent. You're completely non-partisan, yeah, yeah.
2: You? you? know, if, if the government, if, you know, let's say Boris Johnson gets in and he says, Chloe, I love the Taxpayers Alliance. Here's a million pounds. I'd say that is so kind. Um, but no, thank you because we, you don't ever want to be beholden to government, right? I mean, there's always—I think there's always strings attached, isn't there? It's like some of mm. my friends who are artists who receive government grants to do different kinds of, um, you know, poetry and painting and stuff. They, don't live,
1: in, they don't live in—they Cam- don't live in Camberwell, do they?
2: I don't think so. <laughs> um, I know them through Artists for Brexit, um, which is a very, very small group of lots of kind of mostly I anonymous peak creatives. Who I who think
1: Boris's neighbours are fighting the other side on this one.
2: Yeah, I, I don't want to out them, but there I have a few arty friends. I, I write poetry, terrible, terrible self-indulgent poetry in my spare time. And so I know a few creatives and there are some of us who are pro-Brexit. But um, quite a few artists fear coming out as a Brexiteer because, of course, a lot of the people that decide who gets funding for their art projects um, would not look too kindly on that. So it's, it's a big shame. But, yeah, I'm just trying to explain an instance of where I've seen that Government money always comes with a condition, I think.
0: Yeah, I see what you mean now. I see what you mean. I I, I, I see you, you write and direct comedy sketches. I tried to find some online, and I have to admit, it was very difficult. Tell us about that. I'm very interested in that. Oh,
2: thank you. Well, one recently, which caused a bit of a stir, um, was... We did a video of things that so champagne socialists say, and we filmed it in <laughs> about two minutes, and it was just a lot of fun. But it caused you know mass outrage, and a lot of the a lot of the left wing, I think the Independent, wrote it up and said, "Oh, this you know tragic right wing people trying to do comedy." Ha ha. Um. I, so I think we struck a nerve, actually. Brilliant. That's um, what you <laughs> want. <laughs> but yeah, I, I do them for fun. The, the The acting is not very good, and I can say that because I'm the one doing the acting. Um, The writing is, I would say, a bit better than the acting. Um, But it's just things that I do for fun. I think comedy is a great way to get a message across. Yes. And so, yeah, you mentioned, one of you mentioned the tax video. We went to Islington with an iPad and a HMRC website address, said to people, do you think that um, everyone should pay more tax? And they said yes. And then I said, okay, would you like to sign in your details now, you can voluntarily pay more tax. And all of them said no. And that was, that was a really brilliant sketch. Um, that was a lot of fun. We also did... I also wrote one which was um, left-wing media training based on my experience of going into the media with left-wing spokespeople. And it was just a kind of spoof way over the top, but kind of saying, now what do we do when a conservative... When you're on with a conservative, do we, you know, listen to their arguments and reply with our arguments? No. We call them a racist or a sexist <laughs> or a misogynist or, you know... Say this sounds, or say they want to privatise the NHS.
1: <laughs> it all sounds quite accurate so far.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I and ironically, in the in the script, I made sure I had links to more, times of my life where I've I've been called all of these things. Like someone said that I um, was suffering from inter- internalized misogyny because I advocated tax cuts. And I said, what, don't you what? think? Don't you think women pay tax as well? My <laughs> like,
0: God, that's like talk about that person obviously thinking that, how could they draw that conclusion without having that bias themselves?
2: I, I don't know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think that's what's known as the la- the Lammy accusation. You are racist.
2: Totally. Well, you know what? Then this is When it's on Twitter, I don't mind because I go, oh, you're a bunch of crazies, whatever. When it's national newspapers, like the New Statesman, Paul Mason wrote up an article basically saying like, like here are all the Nazis in Britain and the far, far right. And he listed me in there and he said that I was, you know, because I appeared in a video critiquing socialism. I mean, that's, that's the spectrum of the far right, according to the news. This,
1: this, <laughs> this is just pure girl. This is just pure That The, the yeah. side which is guilty accuses the other side of what the first side is actually guilty of themselves. History. So I forget the name of the, the name of the law, but it's somebody's law that says, you know, it, within a, a matter of time, every online discussion ends up with someone being called a Nazi. But yeah, the fact is, that's the left's default starting position now. You're all Nazis.
2: Absolutely. So it and
1: tends to mean the debate doesn't, doesn't really go very far.
2: Well, I, I have a few theories about this. Um, one of them is that you don't really run away from debates you think you can win. And so clearly, if, if someone's trying to shut down a debate with you, it's probably because they think they can't win it, especially if you're, if, if you're armed with facts about, you know, poverty in Venezuela and you know, all the price caps and price controls that have resulted in people queuing for goods. And why does Jeremy Corbyn want to bring that policy in, in Britain? If, if they know that they're going to go up against someone like that, well, it's much easier just to say, oh, well, they're an extremist, so I don't have to debate them. Or, or they're a fascist, so I don't have to recognise their point. It's a really good technique if you want to shut down a debate. Um, I don't think many of the mainstream people that say it really believe it. I think they know what they're doing. They know that they know that I'm not really extreme. They know that you know I'm, I'm not not that extreme. But it helps their cause to say that there might be some people that are really you know quite crazy and do genuinely believe that everyone on the right is that extreme. Um, but it's it's really bad because if you muddy the, the waters and if you really confuse these terms, it's it becomes much more difficult to find out who who the actual fascists are, who the actual neo Nazis are, and you don't want to blur those lines. You want to make it I, I would like to quite know actually who is actually someone that believes in something like white supremacism. I would like to avoid that person, please. But when you use that term to describe a whole range of people.
1: It it demeans it, the it, whole language, it's based totally, language.
2: Totally. And, and you cry wolf so many times that when, you know, maybe an actual fascist or Nazi does appear, um, nobody believes you.
1: One thing just before we go to media pics, it would just be to crowbar a bit of market related stuff in, just just, you know, you can hear it squeaking as it's sort of roundly shoved into the conversation against the grain of the conversation <laughs> um gold yes. uh, do you have anything to say about the the re- uh, i should chloe, chloe it probably won't strike was a huge surprise that at least one of his is a raging gold bug and it's it's, it's not poor um so i just wanted to add a few thoughts about the the, the gold price uh, Paul. uh well,
0: yeah yeah i mean it's um i think we talked about it on the last podcast that it was moving very fast towards a very big level and if it got through it which was 13 around
1: 1385 wasn't it it's, I it thought it was it a bit, bit lower
0: than that around 1350 I think was the trigger point which it's which it's blasted through so yeah it's it's looking very exciting actually for for the gold balls um silver hasn't really moved as much as I would have liked to it'll, it'll
1: come up. it's only a matter of time Paul. yeah
0: i mean but with bitcoin and the other flavors of cryptocurrency moving up so aggressively, and with the hyperinflation that seems to be occurring as Chloe says in Venezuela at the moment, and all the other things that that could happen with the Fed being so loose with policy um it there seems to be just this this it's moving up the winds behind it i don't I don't know how you would pay you know thousands of dollars for a Bitcoin and not want to buy some gold i can't see how it wouldn't move higher but the technicals are definitely looking much better and uh yeah so it's um, with regards to cryptocurrencies they also look like they're moving higher uh for another leg so it, it's all moving in, in what in a synchronized move but i'd like to see silver as i say it's it is it is showing some signs of life but it hasn't really moved as much as i i would have liked
1: chloe do you, do you um do you follow the cryptocurrency market at all
2: I do, but I probably don't understand it. Um, I'm not sure many people do. Um, I, I I read I read up on it. I have heard about Libra, this new yes bizarre Facebook Facebook um, currency. Um, my other half is very very into this, and he's going to be so disappointed that I failed to actually maintain any of the knowledge that he's imparted on me in this regard. Um, I, I wish I could put my boyfriend on Skype right now, but he's gone. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but he'd be, you know, I'm, I can only apologize to listeners that it's me on this podcast and not him discussing Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies.
0: Well, th- but that's an important thing. You know, So you're, you're, a, you're an intelligent person and you find it, I guess, hard to understand the mechanics behind it. And would that be fair to say?
2: Yeah, it's easy. It's easy to understand why a physical, like, for example, I understand why something like gold would go up and down in price. I understand the share market. But the idea of this kind of the the value not being tied to anything is difficult for me to comprehend. It's all very hypothetical.
1: But then, but then, to be to be fair, you could say the same thing about our currency system. I mean, I think Satyajit Das described it as the abstraction of of an abstraction to the extent Mm -hmm. that we used to have gold and silver operating as as money, and then the bankers came along and they replaced that with money uh, with paper money which was reflecting effectively a receipt on um, that, that gold and silver, but it was clearly easier to use. And now we don't even have the paper. We have electronic blips on a, on a computer screen. So we've already come a fairly long way towards complete intangibility. So I'm, I'm not sure crypto is necessarily any different, different. Ex- it's ex- true. except that it, it hasn't got the backing of a ex- explicit backing of a government.
2: No, and as well, it's not probably regulated in, in any way which is why I think a lot of my libertarian friends are so excited about it, because yeah. Yeah. it's giving people more control of their money. And I think the banks are a bit afraid about that.
0: I think with Libra um, and any new big heavyweight potential cryptocurrency that comes on the block, you sort of just have to buy it, don't you, really, because of the upside potential, whether you know anything about it or not.
1: Well, it's like a lottery ticket. To yeah, it, exactly. Yeah. But you, you just you just, you just spread it. So you have, let's say, your play money, uh, part yeah. of the portfolio, and you just you, know, you just sow a lot of seeds with it.
0: So I think a lot of the a lot of the initial investment will just be people going, look, you just have to buy it because you just don't know where it's going to go. And I I agree with that in terms of Bitcoin and in terms of gold and and everything else really that's that's in that space. Anything that's not fiat currency. Um, but I I think there is a problem that if you can make currency on your computer that you end up with so many people trying to do the same that it kind of eventually devalues it. But we're not at that point, and then it'll all shake down into say two or three, or maybe a few more, but definitely under ten um, that uh, that become the established ones, and those are the ones that that we use in day to day life. But it's it's certainly not straightforward to send people money and receive money and to pay for things the the network isn't isn't really there at the moment you know you can't just pop down the shops and buy something with it i mean i mean you can invert commas but it's not easy
2: yeah and i've been following uh, i'm not sure if it is too related but um it kind of is it alipay or one of the kind of banking systems in china where it is all digital and it is very much tied in with a kind of government database of everyone's purchases yes. to the point that they're developing a social credit system on the back of it and so my big not concern but my big you know question mark on all these currencies are interesting to see what they do with the data of kind of purchasing habits if they if it's easier to purchase with make purchases with them but i suppose banks have the same data and we trust them so i i think as well in the modern age the whole idea of, of privacy is is you know you can't really expect any privacy if you're going to use technology but um, anonymizing that data so that it's just kind of groups of people as opposed to this individual bought xyz and as well not giving that to the government to create some kind of weird social credit scoring system i mean can you imagine what the government would do with that gosh like you we buy had, a bar and we've you have had, to pay tax
1: <laughs> we've had Huawei we had Huawei yet. pay yet indeed well, that 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 joke went down like a lead balloon. That's, that's, that's definitely going to have to come out in the final edit. <laughs> no, no,
0: that's saying.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Chloe, you're so busy with what you're doing for the Taxpayers Alliance. Given that you're, you know, you've only got 12 people there, what do you like to do in your spare time when you when
1: you indeed have it? Uh,
2: well, I love people, and so it's going to be really boring. But I just you love people in
1: your spare time. I love spending time. This, with this is people. the kind of guest we should have on more regularly.
2: <laughs> well, I, yeah, I mean. I don't have, I went through a phase of just working non-stop and constantly doing politics, constantly tweeting, but I really miss my friends and I miss out on a lot of life, um, and my my dream is actually to get a dog, um, so that that will force me to have more time every day spending time walking with a dog, doing something like a normal person and not being so caught up in politics, and i love spending time with friends and, and my partner. Uh, my family are abroad, so you know I Skype them when I can. I love writing poetry. It's terrible. Um, the New States have actually reviewed one of my poems unfavorably. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how they found it. My friend put it on Instagram, and then somehow a journalist found it and just ripped ripped it to shreds. Oh, that's not fair.
0: That's not It was, that, so,
2: that... It was soul destroying. <laughs> well, that reflects
0: badly on them, not on
1: you. That's that's not yeah, one. yeah. Attack the ball, not the man. Who, who are your favourite? Who among your favourite poets, Chloe? Uh, I
2: love Keats. I love Keats. Um, I, I don't really understand a lot of the, the modern poetry. I, I love the romantics and the classics. I love, love Greek poetry. I did drama at, at school, and um, I loved reading. The way that they wrote plays is just absolutely phenomenal, um, and it does read like poetry. But modern poets, I really like a poet called um, Shane Koizan, who's like an American a Canadian poet, sorry. He won't like being misnationalised. Um, and he writes lots of cool stuff, which is just... Yeah, it, really life-affirming, really great stuff. He's got a poem called How to Be a Person, which is really, really cool. It's, like, um, it's, like, it's kind of like Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life, but more lighthearted and a bit less um, depressing. And that's really beautiful. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm very amateurish. And I'm, I hope I don't get anyone asking to read my stuff because it is very much like I do it because it's fun and I know that it's bad. So I don't need a journalist to tell me that it's a bad poem. Like, I know it probably isn't very good, but you know, everyone has their hobbies they do for fun and not necessarily because it, it, it's good quality.
1: One of the great insights of the of the Austrian school was that value is subjective. So I think we can say the same thing about poetry. It's in, beauty is in the eye of the beholder.
0: Yeah. Well, I think you may have hit upon something there because... Conservative politicians, if they want to look favourably, all they have to do is get a dog, right? I mean, wouldn't that be, you just win every argument.
2: People love dogs. I love dogs. I don't trust people that don't love dogs, unless they've had a bad experience with a dog, in which case I can appreciate that. I can respect that. Absolutely. um, Nothing better. Did you watch that Afterlife
0: TV show? Yes, I did. So good. Yes, very, very good. Yeah, the Ricky Gervais.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, talking of media picks, was that going to be your media pick?
2: Oh, it, well, it could be. It could be. Um, one article I read yesterday um, it's about a new charity. Well, it's not new, but it's newly got some publicity called um, Lads, Needs, uh, Lads Need Dads. They do a mouthful, um, which was started as like a, a male mentoring service for boys without fathers. Oh, wow. And it's, it started in, in Essex and it, little things like teaching you know, how to change a tire, how to shave, that kind of thing. But they're looking to roll it out in other schools in the UK, and I just think you know this is such a—it's a problem we don't really talk about, um, and I think we don't talk about it because you never want to belittle or make value judgments about different family structures, or say that you know it's, it's bad to be a single parent. I mean, I it might mean I had a single mum, but there are some people, there are some young men out there that just don't have men to show them how to do things or to mentor them, and someone in the community has come up, let me get her name up actually, she deserves a shout out. Her name's Sonia Shaljeen. Um, and she just started this charity because she saw a problem in society and she wanted to help fix it. And I actually I think that charities and communities tend to do such a better job of solving society's problems than kind of big government. Um, and whenever people say, you know, you must be heartless because you want a smaller state, I actually think the state is quite heartless. Like, if you've ever interacted with government, you know, with benefits or, you know, personally, I had, you know, difficult process going through um, immigration stuff. They're just incredibly heartless. Whereas charities are all about heart. And I think that's why a lot of people prefer to go or they, they, you know, not prefer, they don't choose to, but going into a food bank. I volunteer at a um, food bank in London. And when people come in, they're treated with dignity, with respect, offered a cup of tea um, and someone will sit and talk to them. You don't get that from the government benefits department. So um, I just think, you know, this is just another charity I've seen, which has made me think that people are inherently good and community problem solving is the best kind of problem solving.
0: Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So, Tim, what what have you got for this week?
1: Mine for this week is a film I saw about a week ago called Upgrade, uh, which is a a, a low-budget B-movie kind of production. I think it may even be Australian. But uh, it's an absolute belter. Um, it's effectively a kind of reworking of Robocop. So it's kind of Robocop slash Frankenstein kind of story. A guy basically is, is really badly beaten up and his wife's killed uh, during a mugging. And then there's this sort of creepy scientist that comes on. I know he's, he's paralyzed, basically. He's, he's like left a quadriplegic. And a scientist comes along and says, I've got this little chip that will basically restore your physique and then some. So he has this chip implanted and he, he basically becomes more like a Superman. And it's, it's just a terrific film. It, it is a B movie. So you need to sort of watch it with that, with that reservation, but it's the best film I've, it's the best action film I've seen in ages. I really hate superhero stuff because it's nearly all for kids. This is not exactly the same kind of fair because it's, 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 it's it's, re, it's a really bloody film. It's really gory. So it's, it's definitely sort of at the certificate 18 parental advisory end of the spectrum But it's a terrific plot. It's just very well done. I I think I probably stopped counting sort of related films after about a dozen, you know, things like I I lose count of the number of films that it has connections with. But it's a terrific film upgrade, which came out last year.
0: Fantastic. My one for this week is um, I'm going to choose something that I haven't seen yet. And I know that's a bit naughty. The only time I did that last time was um, with The Quiet Place because I got such a good feeling it was going to be great. And I was, wasn't disappointed
1: it's about it's a superb uh, utterly superb horror film
0: oh yeah absolutely yeah that that when i saw it afterwards i realized it was just going to be a classic but um but the the one that i'm gonna have i'm gonna watch this week that i know is just going to be brilliant just because of all the anecdotal feedback is chernobyl on hbo uh i don't know if you've heard a bit about it but it's i've obviously... heard
1: of it i haven't, haven't
0: watched it have you seen it chloe
2: I haven't seen it, but uh, colleagues rave.
0: Yeah, rave this it, I you just get the sense that this is going to be like epic. So I can't wait to see it. And so by the next podcast, I'm going to have watched it, but I can pretty much give it a guaranteed rating, given all the feedback that I've seen about it and all everything. Uh, how,
1: how long is it? Is it like a mini series? It's,
0: it's a series. Yeah. I think, you know, I think it's six or seven episodes or, or, or so, something like that. Um, but it's uh, it's just phenomenal. Apparently, you won't won't see anything better. Uh, so I'm told.
1: I saw I saw a trailer for it. I think it was yesterday, and I just remember the line: "This is like you know, imagine each of these, whatever it is, the the atoms is is like a bullet. Well, there are three trillion of these bullets, and they've got, and they're going to be around for two hundred and fifty thousand years yeah. or something like that. It's Gosh. kind of awesome.
0: Yeah, it's uh, utterly frightening, and um, yeah, just incredible. So, yeah, I can't wait to see that. So look. Chloe, thank you so much for giving us so much of your time and coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. What's the best way for people to contact you?
2: Well, on, um, you know, as I, said, I try to get off Twitter, but I do spend a lot of time on there, and that's where I interact with most people. Um, so at love. Westley is my handle. W e s t l e y, um, named that way because all of my haters have to say that they love me. For that <laughs> that is cunning. That me. is
1: really cunning. That's brilliant. <laughs> that is so cunning. You could take it to cunning school and you know call it a weasel. <laughs> That's super Thank
2: weird. you. Thank you. Yeah, spreading
0: the good vibes. Excellent, excellent stuff. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, as I say, it's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you to everyone for listening. Thank you for all the supports and comments and all the ratings. It really helps the podcast and we really do appreciate it. Until next time. Thank you, Chloe. Thank you, Tim. Thanks.
1: All the best. See you.
0: This podcast is for entertainment purposes only.
1: Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.